In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us ready to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those trespass against us. It is not temptation, it is from evil one. Christ is our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and glory, ever and ever. Amen. Just a warning in advance, I don't know why I'm making myself laugh today, but apparently I think I'm hilarious. Um, so if I'm randomly laughing, it's not at any of you. Um, I've just got that state. Um, thank you, Anthony, for turning on the video because it's making me laugh even harder that I think I'm making myself laugh. Um, anyone else who's ready to turn on their cameras um, would be great. Thanks, Monica. Um, okay. Uh, hey, Bubbly, nice to meet you. Um, you're all on spotlight. Um, can sound check sounds good? I just don't know on my end. Perfect. Okay. All right. So today will be the second last talk. I'm going to be um, putting the meetings on hold for the summer um, because I get into like summer season, there's conventions, there's a lot of local stuff now that everybody's done school. Um, so next week will be the last one, uh, I think, till the new school year. Um, I'll do other stuff that I'll put online on the podcast. I don't think I'll do live um, until school begins again. So next week's will be about not being liars. Um, so there's a little bit of clickbait, but not. I think when I was putting the actual title of Dorotheos' chapters, people didn't realize like the, the depth of what is being said because it was in Old English, um, where it's like um, concerning the remembrance of wrongs is all about not uh, not dropping something. Um, and I hope that you guys have liked this series in the sense that I don't think we've always been able to connect to the Desert Fathers the way that we should, um, where they're talking about real life issues. Um, they're not arbitrary. I also think it's cool that these monks have the same problems um, because I think we always think that there's these holy people living in Iraq um, that never get upset and never get bothered and never have an issue, whereas they're the best advice for this stuff because they had all these problems, um, which is very comforting because if these holy people had it, I feel like I'm in good company. Um, so um, last time we talked about um, self-accusation, which was a nice continuation off of not judging. Um, whereas today he's talking about not remembering how people have wronged us. Um, and I found this chapter particularly helpful because I think it's something that I struggle with sometimes. Um, I actually remember on a recent retreat to the monastery actually telling one father, like, I don't have a problem psychologically or rationally or mentally forgiving some people that I felt wronged me. Um, and I was like, but I definitely struggle to not remember it. Um, especially because there's that poster that is in so many people's houses that's not a Bible verse, but everyone treats like it is. That nice picture of the Lord where it says, when I forgive, I forget. Um, and they're like, like the Bible says, like the Bible never said that. Um, and so we'll, we'll get into it because there's different ways of viewing this, but we'll start off, we'll go through the chapter. Um, I hope that it sparks some discussion at the end too. Um, we'll go from there. So Dorotheus, as usual, starts off by, he always quotes 
a father or a Bible verse to instill that discipleship. He always starts with that. So he starts off saying, you know, how the fathers say that no monk, and anytime I say monk here, insert Christian, um, but he says that, he says, you know, it's not characteristic of, of Christians to become angry or to offend anybody. And he quotes a desert father saying, he who has overcome anger has overcome the demons. But he who's overcome by anger is a stranger to monastic life, right? And I think this is why we all have that stereotype of monks that are always peaceful and quiet. And if you picture a monk getting angry, it seems weird, right? But we get angry. Um, but Alba Dorotheus is going to take it further. And he says, okay, now imagine not only if you're not only a monk or a Christian who gets angry or irritable, but on top of it, you keep remembering the wrongs that people have done to you, right? Um, and he, he says, which I'm laughing, but it's not funny. Um, he's like, you should be crying over such a pitiful and inhuman state of our souls. And it's that uncomfortable laugh. I'm like, ah, I do that. Um, so he says, let us, and this is what I love about Dorotheos, he, he makes it an us issue. He's not treating it like, oh, you filthy scumbags. Um, he's like, let us strive um, with God's help to be delivered from this passion. So number one, just know that he says that it's an inhuman state because he's recognizing that the passions like anger are not actually what are supposed to be natural to us. They're not our, our design, right? So he starts off with a scenario as he always does. He's like, okay, let's say, okay, there's a disturbance, there's an argument among the brothers, the monks, um, or some dissatisfaction comes up. And he goes, now, let's say one of them goes, bows to the other, begging for forgiveness, right? So he goes up and like, and does all the right religious mumbo jumbo. He says the right words, right? Um, he does his magic spell. But, but even after this, he's still upset. And he still is harboring thoughts against this brother, right? He says, you know, this brother, this monk should not underestimate this. He needs to cut that off fast because he says it's actually the remembrance of the wrong is continuing like to brood over it over it that requires so much heedfulness um before it hardens that person and kills them right and it's, it was funny to me because this came up in my own confession earlier this week um this like not underestimating the value or potency of of certain sins where my father confession was saying to me like i don't think you realize that I, was, I thought one part of my confession was a big deal. Um, and I'm like, but the worst, Abuna, is this. And he was like, that's not the worst. He goes, the worst is this other one that you did. He goes, this is the potent one that you're not recognizing how potent it is. Um, and so if we can step back before I can hear Dorotheus saying, remember how Dorotheus talks a lot about small leads to big, right? That we, it starts off by, by ignoring small things that become big things. The same thing is with the heart and soul, right? When we start doing something and become dismissive of it, we might not actually ever realize that this thing is a big deal, right? So for example, think about like a, a kid, like some little kid, and the first time he or she lies. Imagine if you just dismiss it. And like, we all have a lying thing and we, we like, we're like, let's not, let's not make it a big deal. Think about it now from the perspective of the child, not from you. If it's 
if nothing is said, right, nothing points out that this is a problem of any kind. And then let's say that kid starts doing it regularly and you never said a word, let's say you're their parent. When is this kid ever going to find out that it's wrong or dangerous? And then when they do, it suddenly feels like, oh my gosh, this is this humongous task. How do I stop doing it? Like, I didn't even know. And it becomes, it feels like a bigger deal, right? Think about even you when you discover something wrong about yourself being like, oh man, now I have to do X, Y, and Z. But you didn't realize that if I knew from the beginning, it would have been a big deal. This is that concept of small leads to big. And Dorotheus was casually pointing out that remembering wrongs is one of those things that we should have been spotting quickly, right? That if we were actually aware of our health, we would have felt how big of a deal it is at the beginning. Um, and so this is, this, is, this is a good one to work on. It's such a tough thing not to remember someone's offense against you. So we'll get back to Dorotheus. So he says, okay, remembering someone's wrong is one thing. Okay, he's going to start getting into the scientific analysis of it. Anger is a different thing. Irritability is another thing. And disturbance is another thing. He's going to define these, don't worry. Okay, so, so let me help you understand this, he says. He goes, let me give you an example. Someone who is starting a fire. Okay, and, and remember this analogy and stick to it, especially if you have questions at the end. It would be helpful to use the, the fire as our starting point. He goes, so someone starting a fire is going to start off with a small coal. So this small coal, that's the word of a brother that bothers you, right? That, that first spark, he cusses you out, he points out a wrong, he humiliates you, he does something to you, okay? That's the coal, that's the, the start of the offense. He goes, okay, for the time being, it's only a small coal. Now, let's say your brother, it was a word from your brother that pissed you off. He's like, all right, if you bear it, if you put up with it, okay, my brother said something rude. He says, spiritually, you put out the coal. It stops there. But let's say you don't stop there and you think, why did he say that to me? You know what? I'm going to tell him such and such, right? And I'm laughing because this played out exactly the scenario for me like five months ago when I was on retreat and my father confession cussed me out. But um, he's like, so you start off there and you're like, no, why do you say that? I'm, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to tell him? I'm going to tell him like this and this and this and this and this. Um, and in this scenario, you're actually doing the telling, right? Um, or he says, you start thinking if he didn't want to offend me, he wouldn't have said this. He said this on purpose and I am going to offend him back, right? He goes, now here you've added twigs or something else which likewise will light a fire. You've caused smoke. That's disturbance, right? So you're saying step one is just that you're like, just, just that first thing. Disturbance is, ah, you start responding to it. You start smoking, you start adding the twigs, right? And he says more specifically, disturbance is the moval and arousal of thoughts which move and irritate the heart. It's that questioning it. Why did he say that? Was he doing this to piss me off? Were they doing this to get me upset? Were they doing this because they thought I was like, you start analyzing, you're increasing it. That's the disturbance, right? Um, and if we don't understand this, the how to deal with the overall theme won't come clear. And then irritation is the vengeful uprising. Now it's not just why did they say that and, and, and ruminating on it. 
it's I'm going to respond, right? I'm, I'm going to tell this, this guy off and you might have choice French words um, for them. So it's the vengeful uprising, right? That I want to retaliate. And that turns into audacity. Audacity is the complete opposite of meekness and humility. It's like, oh, I'm going to tell you what I really think, right? Where it comes out. Um, note the accuracy and precision of these differential diagnoses, right? So he says, forgiving right away is putting out the coal, right? The right? Let it pass. Let it, let it go by. But remembering the wrong is instead of putting it out, Instead of doing that is to think about it, meditate on it, cogitate on it, planning your reaction. Those are adding fuel to the fire. And where does it go? He says, disturbance is the movement and arousal of thoughts which move and irritate the heart. And then that vengeful uprising that we said, that's where it's going to go. If you don't drop it right away, it's going to escalate, right? Um, and he quotes from the Desert Father saying, malice nourished by thoughts right so you already have the anger when you feed it with thoughts you're watering this plant with thoughts it irritates the heart but it can be destroyed by prayer and hope which crush it and we'll get to what that looks like because some of you might think that's unreasonable but we'll get there um anger can't grow without being fed period right i think all of you in your own experience know that right like your own, look at any time you're angry, you got angrier when it was fed, right? What kept that feeling going? Your thoughts, your interpretations of the scenario, your remembrance of the event, right? The replay. It's the replay that makes it grow. That's why he's starting off with the remembrance of evil. That replay does so much, right? What kills it? prayer and that might sound bizarre it's not and it only sounds bizarre because most of us don't like to pray because we think it's boring or we think it's useless or we think we're talking to ourselves but that's um its own topic but we're going to come even back to that just not as a full-blown thing the lord says bless those who curse you that's a prayer um uh, I think someone's mic went on. I'm going to turn off unmute. I'm just worried that we're being Zoom bombed because I have a phobia of it and I'll return on the mic ability uh, near the end just to be safe. Sorry, guys. Um, okay. All right, I have now muted all just to be safe. We are so far safe from the Zoom bomb, um, which might not even be a Zoom bomb. It might be someone's uncle in Egypt, but just to be safe. Um, <laughs> so uh, I lost my spot. Okay. Blessing those who curse you, right? This is what the Lord said. Bless them who curse you. Turn that into a prayer, right? Wishing well for those who disturb you is what that means. Blessing rather than cursing is saying, this person wished me evil. I wish them well, right? Um Praying to be pure from any offense, right? Because prayer dispels the wrongness of thoughts because you're bringing them into the presence of light, right? You turn on the light in the room where you become aware. Once you're in the presence of God, who is light, it'll be like, oh man, these are not right thoughts, right? But if we started from step one, 
right? If you had borne the small word of your brother from step one, you will have already extinguished like the coal from the beginning, right? This disturbance wouldn't even have reached there. Um, it can also be extinguished while it's still insignificant, he says, by means of silence, prayer, or he says a single um, prostration from the heart. And I love the way that he worded that and we'll explain what that means. In a word, acts of humility, right? This is to where, this is where to jump in the exercises from the last two instructions he gave about judging and self-accusation. When those are second nature to you, it won't have gotten stoked because you'll have already skipped that step because let's say your brother gives you a horrible word that you don't like, right? If you had mastered self-accusation, like Malish, maybe he's upset. Maybe I've upset him. Maybe he's going through a rough time. What have I done? Maybe I'm doing something that's bothering him, right? Well, you, you've extinguished the cool by your humility already. So I'm like, if you do the exercises from last week's talk from, from self-accusation, you likely won't even find yourself angry because you'll already, instead of accusing this person of their anger, of what they're doing that you think they're doing wrong, that's accusing them, you would have started with accusing yourself, not with them. So you could have stopped it really, 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 really fast if you, if you do those exercises. But um, and so those are the prostration, those acts of humility. They're going to come naturally, right? And then the sin is stopped dead in his track. But he recognizes what most of us do. And he goes, but if you will continue to smoke it, right, to fan those flames, that is to be irritated, to stir up the heart by the remembrance, thinking, why did he say that to me, right? I'm going to let them know what I really feel. From this very stream and clash of thoughts, he says, the heart is heated and burns and the inflammation of irritation ensues, right? This irritation is kindling, right? For those of you who camp, like, like we're always looking for that dry birch bark, right? Because you can add that and it'll light up fast, right? For those of you who like fake fire, it's your lighter fluid. Um, but for us Canadians, we like the real stuff. Um, but it's, it's that and it catches fast, Right. And it sparks and it flames and it, and it jumps and it leaps. Right. And it, and it really, um, it, it's, it stirs things up. Right. Um, but then the more kindling you put in the fire, the more the fire blazes and then its embers are deep and hot. Right. Now the fire is real. This is a fire that's not going to go out with a little bit of wind. Now it's lit. Right. Um, and this is this is where the danger starts. Right. So our thoughts, OK, our remembrance of this crime that we feel has happened to us. Right. Are keeping the story alive. Keeping the narrative. That's what stokes the fire. Right. Think of any story you have in your mind where you can remember being really angry. OK. Now think of how many people you either told the story to or whether in that scenario you kept on replaying the story more and more in your mind. For sure, you either told people or you kept on replaying it over and over. And that's what got you angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. The, again, that replay. Now, did that make you, you're retelling the story to others. 
Did it make you more peaceful or more angry, right? Especially when probably if you're retelling it to your yes men, right? They were probably like, wow, they did that. I can't believe it. You should like, I, that they're so insert some explicitive or some accusation, right? Did you feel more forgiving towards the person or persons after you, you retold it or more worked up? And did you feel like recounting the story made you want to reconcile with the person who upset you, right? Because so many people will be like, I'm just venting, right? I'm just venting. And it's like, are you just venting? Or are you more stoked now, right? Are you more ready now to take them out? And now with the backing of all your friends, right? Of being like, yeah, that, that person deserves X, Y, and Z. So Dorotheus is saying that every time you do that, you're doing the opposite of extinguishing. You are stoking, right? You're stoking or you're recalling is putting irritation on the fire. It's putting irritation to the heart. There's, there's nothing poking, right? And that's why one of the Abbas, he knew, he's talked about Abba Zosima, had some saying that he, he quotes that was really cool where he says, where there's no irritation, now ir irritation understood in this context, no stoking, the, en the, the enemy is silent, right? Said differently, in very plain English, if you don't add fuel to the fire, it dies. It's that simple, right? And the obvious is always there. We just don't like the obvious. We don't like to do it, right? We, we, we would rather the kindling. So he gives a little bit of advice. He says, number one, first step is at the initial offense, okay? He says, now, Right when the offense happens, at the onset of this disturbance, when it begins to smoke and you see the sparks, someone needs to be fast to reproach himself and bow down to their neighbor, begging forgiveness before irritation can flare up. He has preserved peace. Right from the get-go, be quick to bow to your neighbor and be humbled, right? Just like the exercises we talked about last week, right? Let's say someone comes up to you and they throw a word man, it seems like I've caught you at a bad time. It looks like I've done something to bother you. Whatever I've done to bother you, I just want to say sorry quickly. It's done. Right? But if instead you're like, who do you think you are to talk to me like that? What have I done? All I've done is just be normal today. And here you are coming at me like I did something wrong. What did I do? Right? Like then suddenly the other person is even more on the defensive. They were on the offensive, now they're on the offensive and the defensive, right? And now we're stoking. Now we've got conflict, right? And then let's say I go on and retell it. So that's the beginning. The initial offense is like, stop it dead in its track. There will be nothing to remember. That's why it's like prevention is better than treatment. There'll be nothing to remember because it didn't get anywhere, right? So if you can stop it dead in its track, that's the best thing. He goes, but second, is at the remembrance of the evil. He says, okay, by the same token, if, if the person offended doesn't remain silent when the irritation is enkindled, but instead continues to be upset to get themselves worked up, he will become, like we said, someone placing wood on the fire and the wood will burn until it finally turns into a pile of smothering coals. This is the golden, like I love this quote, I, I posted it earlier on Facebook, but where he says, 
just as a smoldering core can be preserved several years unharmed if they are extinguished and gathered together. And even if someone's would put water on them, they will not decay, right? Again, those of you who are campers, this is such a visceral, I love this analogy because it's so real to me, right? It's like these, these pieces of wood that years later you can come and they're just solid black and they serve as some of the best ember. That's like your core of the fire, right? Like it's, it's alive and well, and it gives a lot of heat. He's saying that that is like anger. If it stagnates, it'll turn to garments of wrongs. And then now it wasn't that original fire to worry about. This remembering of it is you've got these, these, these black pieces of, of, of coal that are ready to light so easily and to give deep, deep, deep flame. Right? He's like, that's what happens from which a man is not delivered unless he sheds his own blood. Um, that is, he says, to make great labor and efforts. Now, I found this part really telling. Right? How many of you have wounds that go back? Right? That when someone just says certain names, you claim trauma. When the trauma might, it might be trauma, but it probably might actually be deep visceral anger deep anger that just the remembrance of that name is enough to be like oh don't get me started about that oh, i don't want to revisit that if i start talking about that i'm not gonna like i'm gonna and it starts coming out right and so we're, we're overusing the word trauma so people have real trauma but really it's i have this deep anger and you hit the button i'm lighting that coal now let me what is my automatic response when that happens? Let me tell you, right? Let me remember the narrative and let me retell it. And I suddenly just turned on all those coals all over again, right? And that name is enough to get someone going into a rage. And the alleged offense that caused the rage might even have been more than a decade ago, right? This might be years ago and you're acting like it happened yesterday. Right. That is what Dorotheos is explicitly talking about. Um, I think Dorotheos must have camped. Um, the wood that you use to light a fire, if dealt with properly, um, harden and firm, and they can be used for a long time, as we said. Add the right fuel and you're ready for a fire. That fuel, your thoughts, your memory. Right. That's your lighter fluid. Um, and he's saying that's what our memories are like, the remembrance of anger even if we haven't been functioning in a rage, if we start activating these memories again, right? So we might be like, oh, but I haven't been acting angrily. Like that happened in the past. I'm not acting angrily now. I'm still serving. I'm still doing this. I'm working. I have my, whatever it is, right? We haven't been functioning in what appears to be a rage, but once it's activated, those memories, the fire is ablaze again. And these episodes are scary and worthy of all caution and fear. And that kind of anger is not usually benign, right? That anger usually comes with it, a host of other sins, not the least of which is judgment that we talked about. Um, but this kind of anger also tends to come with malice and ill will, right? Where I'm not just angry. I actually wish wrong on others, right? And I, I think most of us have have felt that. Um, to review, initial disturbance, the act that causes something. Irritation, the throwing fire, wood into the fire, or smoking the fire. Anger, 
is the many burning coals produced from the increased irritation. And remembrance of evil is reigniting those preserved coals, right? It's a helpful way to think about it in, in any scenario that you've got in your life. Um, and Dorotheo says, isn't it incredible how a single word can start that whole flow? Just the smallest word can set that whole thing off, right? Yet he says, if you reproach yourself from the beginning and you patiently take a person's mean word without, and careful of his wording here, I love the choice of words he made, without cherishing the desire for revenge, without wanting to respond with a word or two, without returning evil for evil, you'd be delivered from that whole sequence. Right? If you didn't give this cherishing of just wanting to get back at a person for what they said. Right? Be careful of this instruction he gave. I think sometimes when we feel um, mistreated um, or like we've been unjustly seen, right? Not even, it doesn't have to be a word, just we've been seen in an unjust way. We want to take justice in our own hands, right? We want to rectify the situation. Right? And we think of what word we could have said to silence them. And we have these scenarios in our head that we're ready to make our play. And what we're doing is, is stoking our anger. Lana, this, I mean, this, this chapter has struck me a lot because I've been dealing more with irritation lately than I'm used to. Um, so it was a good one for me personally. And, you know, I hadn't dealt with anger, forget irritation, but anger. I hadn't dealt with anger in a long time. Um, this was a recent thing with my father confession. Um, and I felt like I was going through it the first time in a long, 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 long time. Um, anyone who knew AP in high school, I mean, my parents are almost always listening to this. They'll tell you. Um, I was angry at home. Very nice to outsiders, but at home I was king anger. Um, and I hadn't dealt with it for a long time. And recently I felt like I was, I was very upset about a scenario. And I confessed a few months ago to my public confession that I was... I was getting angry and then I was coming up with these scenarios in my head, right? Where I would have these fictitious conversations, right? Of being like, you know what? Like, this is what I'd say, right? If this person bring this up, like I'm ready. And this is how I'm going to say it. I'm going to, I'm going to nail it. Um, and I'm like, and it'll be even said in like a Christian way, which there was nothing Christian about my disposition. Right. Um, and I was having these imaginary conversations in my head where I'm responding to my so-called aggressors and I got whipped by him. And he, he said something to me similar to Dorotheus' advice, like that I think could be helpful to this scenario. Where it was just like, you know, when I like, what would you fix? Like, let's pretend it was Christian to do what you're doing and it's not. Okay. But let's, let's pretend it was, what have you fixed? Your anger. Does your anger, does your anger fix anything? Is your anger going to change how that person's existence is? Let's say they have a characteristic that really bothers you. Is your anger going to suddenly make them not have that characteristic? Is your anger going to change the dynamics of your situation? I was like, no. And he goes, right. So the only person it's actually affecting is you. The only person being destroyed from within is you. You are. 
you're the one upset. You're the one irritated. And when you're irritated, you're not in the mood to do other things that are good for you or good for others. Your service will be weakened. Your mood is going to be off with other people. It's you. You're the one affected by your anger. And meanwhile, this person that you think all these things about is living the like, like nothing happened. And they sleep at night and you don't. And I was just like, dang, um, this is true. Um, and so he's just like, so on top of it is that it's wrong, <laughs> right? And so it was, it was a really good awakening being like, yeah, right? And, and basically like on another level, it's apparently I just want the whole world to conform to me. I don't want other people to have certain sins. Why, right? That's what it comes down to. If I'm pointing out a real wrong that they've done, then basically I'm saying, I'm angry that you sinned. Right? Like, what am I going to be like? How dare you sin? They're going to sin. I sin. Why am I allowed to sin? And they're not. I'm sinning by judging. I'm sinning by getting angry. And apparently that's okay. Right? Like this different way of thinking can help bring it down. Right? And yet, and this is what was weird to me is because anger was new to me. I hadn't dealt with, I have many sins. Just that wasn't a big one for me in a long time. Right. Is that I looked at it from the opposite being like, well, for years I haven't dealt with this. And when I didn't think that way with all like this, how to respond, etc., nothing used to disturb me. Right. And I didn't recognize that it was my decisions, not other people's decisions, my decisions that were causing my anger choose the gospel, right? And here's where he gives a golden quote. Therefore, I say to you, says Dorotheos, always cut off the passions while they are still young before they have become strongly rooted in you and begin to oppress you. For if you don't, you will suffer much from them. You will suffer much from them because it is one thing to uproot a small sprout and another to uproot a great tree. Um, pearl. And then he points out the hypocrisy and he goes into a psalm. And this was, I thought, also very helpful. He points out what we pray and sing prayers all the time that are the opposite of what we choose to do. So he chooses one of the psalms that they were singing regularly in the monastery and that are part of our prayer books, where David says, if I have paid back evil for evil, then let me fall back empty from mine enemies. Right. So the prayer. So here we are praying this psalm that says, oh, Lord, if I render evil for evil, right, then let me fall back from my enemies um, empty. And he's like, so uh, I guess most of us are praying that and don't mean it. Right. Because we're returning evil for evil all, all the time. But then he goes and explains this psalm and says, this is mind blowing that we're praying this happily, where he says falling back empty refers to when one is standing in combat with their enemy, okay, saying, so imagine the scenario, this is what the psalm is talking about. So you're in front of your enemy and your enemy strikes you, okay? Now, you can either strike or be struck, vanquish or be vanquished, but you're originally standing. He goes, now, let's say your enemy strikes you and you fall down, how do you fight? So he's saying the prayer of that psalm is saying, okay, if I return evil for evil, A, let me fall down. Like, I deserve to be struck by my enemy and fall down. And he goes, but it says not just fall down, it says fall down empty. Why empty? He's saying, 
to have no more strength to resist, to lie on the ground. But to be empty means to have nothing good to help me get back up again. A person with strength to arise can take care of himself and enter battle again. But he says, but we say that the enemy, then it says, it goes further and says, let the enemy pursue my soul and take it. Not just the enemy come after me and take it, but let me become subject to my enemy. Let me submit to him in all things and in every matter. Let him overtake us. If we should return evil for evil to the one who does evil to us. Not only do we pray about this, but we also say, let him tread down my life into the dust. This is part of the song. And so he's saying, we're praying this. Here you are standing up and saying, Lord, if I turn evil for evil, I deserve this. He's like, so how on earth do you stand up and hold your Igbeya that you probably hate and pray those words and then turn around and do it? We're saying, Lord, if I return evil for evil, let me fall down from my enemies. Let him pursue me and take my soul because how dare I return evil for evil? And then I close my prayer book and be like, that scumbag who just said this to me, right? And it's like, okay, apparently, like, I was just joking, Lord, right? He's saying this is hypocrisy in it, right? What is our life? What is virtue? Like, we're, we're saying, Lord, give it all, all up. So Dorotheus is saying, if you're praying that psalm, then every time you return evil for evil, every time you think evil and remember evil against your neighbor, you are actually praying to be deprived of God. Right? He, he explains the psalm further. I'm just giving the fast version of it. To be deprived of life, that's in the psalm. To be deprived of virtue. That's what we're doing. So this in and of itself, I think, is a helpful exercise for our memory of evil to remind ourselves what its consequence is. Right for those who want that psalm, it's Psalm seven, verse three through through five. Um, so, do you see? He says how you curse yourself when you sing all of this, and then return evil for evil. Right, and then he says, how often do we return evil, evil without the slightest concern about this, paying no attention to it? This reminds me of like when somebody like awoke me and like, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and it's just like, uh, does anyone do that? Right. Like we've we, we've put a condition right of being like, forgive us as we forgive. But apparently we don't. Right. But then he says that there's other ways of returning evil for evil. And I think this is so important because some of us pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, I don't do that. He goes, but returning evil for evil is not just with words. It can be an appearance. It can be in your countenance, how your, your, your visual disposition is. Right. We can upset others by our facial expressions, by our movements or glances. Right. This is evil for evil, too. Right. We know that we can communicate without words. Right. If somebody walks into a room and folds their arm without speaking with an angry face, you know what it means. Right. If somebody goes like this to you, you know what it means. Right. And so he's saying it doesn't even have to be a word. Right. Think of when you thought about whether you reply to a text or not, because you know that even the not replying sends a message right? Where you will sit in the room can be a message. The facial expressions that you intend to give to a person you're upset with is a message. Your revenge is not always with words, right? And it, and it can be worse. It can be in your heart that there is dissatisfaction, even though nothing on the outside appears, right? Which is, in a sense, more dangerous because it's deep-rooted. 
right? To me, that's like the, like a cancer that has no outward symptoms, right? Or a disease like the, the silent diseases where there's no outward sign or symptom apparent to anybody, but it's happening, right? Another person might not have a grievance against his brother, right? But they're so happy if they hear that the person that they don't like has been offended in some way or scolded or belittled or humiliated. And so in his heart, they're turning evil for evil, right? Like where at least some part of it is like they had it coming, right? You're returning evil for evil, even if inside. And he says, there are others that we should be like who have no mouths in the heart and do not rejoice when they hear about, uh, about an offender's humiliation, right? In fact, the virtuous person will be upset if someone else is offended, right? Think about what it means about you when you're happy that somebody is in a bad place, right? Imagine, let's say somebody was happy when you were poor because you had bad fortune and suddenly you lost all your money. And then that person loses everything. Imagine if you're like, good, good, right? You're happy that this person's in poverty, right? You're, you're happy that they're, they're, they're going through a tough time. Like this is, that's very evil about us, right? So he comes back to that first story. Uh, sorry, before that, he says, but look at how far a remembrance of evil can go. Why? So you can be on guard of it. The opposite of that virtuous person who doesn't wish evil on anyone um, is that you might even, if you see the person who upsets you get praised or someone speak well of them, that you get upset. And he's like, that is a sign of remembrance of evil, no matter how, no matter how light it looks to you. We should always rejoice over our brother's cons consolation, their comfort, and do everything in order to render him honor. So he returns now to the framing story with more understanding. He says, we said at the beginning of the chapter that there's these two that bow to each other and that a per they might bow, but a person might still be upset after it. They've, they gave him a tanya. And we said that he, he could heal his anger by making them a tanya, but hasn't yet struggled against remembering the evil. He goes, but a different person is offended by his brother, but the two bow down to each other and are reconciled, and yet he lives in peace with him and harbors no thoughts. But when after some time that brother again makes an offensive remark, it's like, so here's a scenario. He's saying, let's say there's two people, they were in a fight, they did a prostration, they're fine. Okay, he let it go. He goes, but let's say the same two later have another issue. And the person makes an offensive remark again. He goes, now here's another danger where you were fine originally. You didn't think about it. You didn't say anything. But now once they've made another sin, you start to recall all the previous events. Ah, this is the guy who insert all previous crimes against humanity. Right? And now the original offense that I wasn't upset about I'm now upset about plus the new one, right? This is compound interest. And he says, this second story is like a man who has a wound and he applies plaster to it. And I like that he heard plaster because I don't know about those of you who went to Egypt, but they'd always call band-aids bluster. Um, and apparently bluster is band-aid and that's what it was always called. But 
that's a random aside of no meaning. Um, and he goes like, so you have this wound and you put a bluster on it. Um, and this wound has healed and grown over, but the spot is still sore. Okay. He goes, now imagine if someone throws rocks at them. That spot is going to be injured before the rest of the body and begin to bleed. Right. I love, I love Dorothy's analogies. And he says that this is what a man who is previously offended is like. He had a wound. He applied a plaster. He did the matanya. That was the plaster. And just like the guy in the framing story, the first scenario of the prostration, he was healed of his anger. Right. He's like, okay, we're good. We're fine. Right. Now, if he similarly begins to direct his strength against the remembrance of wrong, trying not to remember or nourish this thought of his heart, then he is covering the wound. He puts on that, that, that covering. But if it hasn't completely healed yet, and the Band-Aid here is some kind of symbol of that incomplete healing, then there are still memories under that Band-Aid. And if the person removes the Band-Aid, he's going to deal with the wound again. And that's why we have to struggle to completely clean that inward festering so the afflicted place can be healed with no deformations so how can one achieve this and again no one likes prayer but he's starting with that by praying with his whole heart for the brother who has offended him saying oh god help my brother and me for the sake of his prayers Turning your so-called enemy into your intercessor. Lord, through the prayers of so-and-so, deliver me from this. This way a man, and he says, God help my brother and me. This way a man prays for a brother, and that's a sign of compassion and love. This act of love can be redeeming, and it is real. It is very real. He is also humbled, begging help for himself for the sake of his brother's prayer. So it's not this ego thing of like, I pray for my poor brother who still sins in this way, right? Of being like, no, I'm, I'm a sinner here too. Lord, help him and me through his intercessions, through her intercessions. Where there are, he says, compassion, love, and humility, how on earth can irritability or the remembrance of wrongs or any passion flourish? It's just logical, right? Think of somebody that you care about who did something stupid, objectively stupid, Right. Where everybody is like, well, he's a moron. Like, what was he expecting? Right. He, he spent all of his money at the casino. Yes, he's in poverty, obviously. Right. Now, I'm using this to, to, to tell you the, the power of compassion, not about justifying a wrong. But Dorothea is saying, if you view a person of compassion, you won't be able to, to see them that way. You'll be like, if your overwhelming emotion here is or disposition is how is he going to live? He has no money. This poor guy with this addiction, how is he going to live now? What can we do? What Dorothea is pointing out is you won't be able to be like, huh, what an idiot, and be like, at the same time. They, they can't coexist, right? So he's saying by praying for this person, by having compassion, saying, Lord, save them. I'm worried for them. And I'm worried for me. You won't know how to have that anger at the same time. Right? 
um, it really works. It changes the hearts. Um, it might not change the other person, but it will change you. Right? I was talking to a beloved brother recently about this book. Um, and we were talking about it, one of my, my monk brothers. And he said that th this specific exercise that Dorotheus gave, Lord, help him and me through his prayers. He was actually like, he goes, no, dude, you don't understand this. That prayer saved me from a really tough ongoing tribulation that I was in. Like it wasn't a day or two. He goes, it, it, it got me through literally. Um, and today him and the person that have been uh, like troubling him are very close, very close. So not only did it prevent him from getting angry, remembering the evil, it gave him the ability and the power to get very close to this very person about whom he was praying, right? So this, this exercise is a real practice of the gospel. It's not just blessing those who curse you. It's exalting your enemy and making you the lesser one, right? It's a deep act of humility that will transform from words to reality when you see your brother as worthy of being served, not someone you want to enslave. It's, it's, it's powerful. He goes on about that father, he knows Abu Zusima, who said, if the devil would conjure all his cunnings and his malice together with all his demons, the devil brought all of it. All of that will be made void and vanquished by humility, according to the commandment of Christ, by bowing to the gospel. It's done, right? This is why the great Abba Anthony, the best, um, where it was said, I saw all the snares of the enemy before me. And I said, and how will I pass this? And the answer was humility, right? Humility completely changes it. Um, another elder said, he who prays for his brother will not have remembrance of wrongs. Put this into practice, he says, and you will understand what you now hear, right? Try it. For in truth, you will not learn this by simply hearing it. You, he's like, you can hear this all you want. You need to do this. What man desiring to learn an art can apprehend it through words alone? No. First, he works and ruins, works and destroys his work. And thus, by his labors and patience, he learns the art with God's help. Who looks upon his labor, with God's help, sorry, who looks upon his labor and good intentions? And we wish to learn the art of arts through words alone, without putting them into practice. Is this possible? No. So try the exercise. Put it into practice. Make, uh, this is me now, make a, make a prayer list of all the people that you feel have offended you and that you hold a grudge against and start asking for healing through their intercession. Start it. Just do it as, just even start with the words, right? When you see your brother as great, you will want to exalt them right? If you want to understand this, look at the opposite. Think of whoever you actually really value. Do you not make excuses for them when they transgress, right? I was, I was in a really bad mood on Monday, and somebody in this room unfortunately got the receiving end of it, um, and I was pointing out all the wrongs of the world and how dare these people think this when I blah, 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 and he did this exercise, right? Where immediately it was just like, I think it's just that they view you in this way, which is really nice, right? Um, and so think of those that we love, right? And we always make excuses for them when they, when they do that. And now imagine on top of your thinking, who am I to believe this is an act of humility? I'm very compelled because I felt so guilty about Monday. Who am I to believe 
I'm due any honor or reverence. Who do I think I am to think I deserve some special respect? Right? So I'm saying this is the power of, of prayer. Right? Like once I come to that disposition, now I'm not going to be upset with these people. I'm going to be like, why do I think they owe me anything? And I mean, right? This is what the great St. Pope Krullus, right, said. And right? Where would this, where does a worm go among kings? He wasn't just saying it, he believed that. Right? And because of it, this is a man who was doing miracles and they were calling a sorcerer, right? Where they were like, that guy, that fraud, you want that guy to be Pope? Like, that guy's a fraud, right? And yet, what did they find in the drawer of St. Pope Krulus when he passed away? All his hate letters. All the hate mail. Right, all the negative tweets, not not any of the positive, right? Um, why do I want respect? I don't want to ruin it with too many med meditations, but I'm saying this is the power of prayer. It will change and vary based on the situation, right? Um, but at the end result is that you will wonder why you thought yourself so big as to be like, how dare someone offend me? As though I'm somehow the one who can't be offended. How often... Do we offend God with our deeds and behaviors with no second thought? And yet here I am upset that someone offends me. So why do I demand others to treat me better even than God? Right? This, mean, this is where the meditation, the prayers will change you. Where you'll be like, oh man, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord, that I did this. I'm sorry that I thought this. I'm sorry that I was mad at my brother. My brother, sin all you want. I'm sorry. My problem is that I think I'm unworthy of being sinned against, right? It's fadl, right? God doesn't demand retribution for our transgressions, right? When you transform in this way, you will be immovable. You'll be immovable. That's the, that's the irony of the gospel. That's the strength of the gospel, right? Is that by being weak, you become strong. Why? Because it is voluntary. Because if you are transformed this way, if you start to think this way, you'll start to recognize that your dignity and worth comes from God. Not from how others view you or treat you or say things of you. That's not what gives you your intrinsic value. Your intrinsic value comes from God, from your sonship or daughtership to him. So how someone treats you or doesn't treat you has nothing to do with your actual value. Right? A son of a king, insult him all you want. He's genetically the son of the king. It's a fact. Say what you want. He remains that. Right? It doesn't change because of what someone did or didn't do. Nor does his reaction to how people treat him change that either. Right? So I'm like, is that you will change and it won't matter anymore how they view you and whatever it is that you are upset about. Right? 
you will be resolute and unmoved, not because of your disdain of your neighbor. That's not where you're going to find your strength. It'll be because of your confidence in your sonship or daughtership to God. And suddenly you view everyone else as your siblings. Right? Even your aggressor is your sibling. No matter what crime they have committed, they remain your sibling. Right? And so we'll end with that quote for a minute. I, I see a few questions already. But he ends with, let us therefore pay heed to ourselves. Pay attention, my brother. Labor with diligence while we still have time. May God grant us to remember and to fulfill what we hear, that it may not serve to our condemnation on the day of the Lord's judgment. To God belongs glory, honor, and worship the age of ages. Amen. Um, so here's... Uh, one of the questions that was pasted. Um, if we don't remember wrongs, we run the risk of having it done to us all over again. If one has learned that a certain so-and-so has a tendency to tell lies, to use people for personal gain, or whatever the case may be, it would behoove that person to bear that in mind whenever they encounter this person, or they will likely again become this person's victim. We learn from our experiences, being a Christian should not be being fodder for serial killers and narcissistic sociopaths. I'd actually disagree with you, to be honest with you, and, and respectfully. Christianity doesn't say, I'll agree with you that Christianity doesn't say, go be fodder. But Christianity says, don't resist being fodder. Because Christianity is not about me finding out what's wrong with others. They're going to do wrong. Right. And, and we're not even saying, oh, and pretend that they're right. The gospel is saying, how do I respond to evil done to me? Right. And the gospel speaks differently about how I respond to evil done to others. Right. Because actually, and that's his own topic. I'm just not going with it, like going there right now. The gospel does care about justice to others. Social justice has a Christian meaning to it. Um, I'm just scared to use that expression because I don't mean it in the same way as it might be socially used. Um, but there, there is an aspect of justice to others. But the gospel is not asking me to account for my neighbor's crimes, including the serial killer. Although I can take responsibility if I want to self-accuse from this in the last week of, is there something that I've done to contribute to the making of serial killers, for example? Um, but I don't need to remember their wrongs. I don't need to hold their wrongs against them. Right? Um, it doesn't mean not having wisdom. But the way that I'm interpreting this question is, is the last part of saying, um, not being fodder for serial narcissistic sociopaths. So I'm like, no, they're going to do them. But what we're called on is how do I do me as a son or daughter of Christ? What does that look like? Um, that's the part um, that I think is, is called upon. If I'm misunderstanding, please, I beg you, um, follow up um, because I might have misunderstood. Um, what if you don't respond to someone because they hurt you and you're trying to protect yourself, is that still wrong? Yes and no. So if we go back to the analogy that I've used over and over in previous talks, it's just I like it because it works and we can keep coming back to it. 
right? Is that, and I think this deals with the first question too, is that in this analogy, if perfect love is that I'm willing to die for my neighbor, right? And we've said, okay, let's pretend that that's maximum human, human potential lifting a thousand, right? If I die lifting, that's martyrdom, it's good. Like that, that is the gospel. But what, I, what we're also saying is that I'm aware that me and you and most of us don't lift a thousand and not all of us are ready to die, right? So I might be at the point of lifting 200 pounds or kilograms and another person is at 300. I should always be striving to be able to learn how to carry more, right? So if I'm saying someone has hurt me, what I'm, I guess what I want to say is I shouldn't say I'm not doing this because you hurt me. I should be saying I'm the one who's unable to bear 201. I'm at 150. It is my weakness that removes me from this, not that guy's crime. Right. That's why this all ties to the judgment chapter and the self-accusation chapter, because in saying because that person hurt me is the complete opposite of self-accusation. That's my active prosecution of another person. That person did this. I prosecuted, judged them. And the, and the penalty is they will not have my presence. That's the mindset of that way of speaking, as opposed to saying. I don't know how with my illness to deal with this person's illness. The weakness is in me. If I were a better Christian, I would be able to, but I am not able to. That can be a way of dealing with it with guidance, but I should always still be trying to learn how to carry more, right? And everyone at their own paces, and that's where spiritual guidance comes in. And, and we're not all able to do that. So I'm not saying you scumbags who can't do it. We're all struggling with it, right? As much as to say the way of speaking and thinking is different, because I'll also be looking at it as, if I do this practice that, that Abba Dorothea put about prayer of being like, man, here I am talking about how bad this person is. Um, when, when really I'm the one who's failed to show the virtue, I'm the one who's remembering evil. I'd even say how many people have something they could prosecute you for, right? That are also remembering your evil towards them, right? We've all done it. So the best is to start with the gospel. Um, a follow-up professor, no disrespect intended, but I dare you to turn a serial killer into your intercessor. Challenge accepted. Um, and I don't mean that um, at all with, with um, I, I don't even that at all sarcastically. I would say, indeed, no, that is a good spiritual exercise, right? Especially as we humanize people more um, with the science behind serial killers, many of them have had really horrific upbringings, so excusing, like, like forgiving someone, praying for somebody um, is not the same as saying that what they're doing is right. Um, actually, if I can tangent for a second, this isn't necessarily a response to the comment, but it, it reminds me of something important because language and, and the way we speak has changed. Virtue used to have different meanings. The, to be compassionate used to be a word that was mostly reserved for people who you did not believe deserved mercy. The word compassion used to be a word meant for people like serial killers, right? So like, for example, you wouldn't need to say, oh man, I have compassion for, 
um, the person who got robbed, it was a no brainer. You didn't need to even say that. Of course, that person like was who you, you, would, you would have solidarity with. The word compassion was usually meant to be for people who socially or because of their deeds were viewed as not supposed to be receiving compassion. And so compassion used to be a word that you would especially use for a murderer or a serial killer or an adulterer or a liar or a thief. Um, and so actually to turn the serial killer into your intercessor would be a good thing to say, Lord, by their prayer, save them and me, which is what the prayer says, save them and me. We're not pretending that the serial killer is good or right or justified in serial killing. We're simply saying the gospel demands of me to respond in a particular way and not to fuel anger um, and rage at a person. Um, I hope that that, dis that distinction matters. Um, if you haven't dealt with the cause right away at the beginning, for example, the thing that caused the anger is far in the past, like you mentioned, what is the remedy then? You mentioned often about Dorotheus's guidance to deal with it right away. But what if we didn't and the anger is buried and lingers in the background of our mind or heart? What if we didn't cut off the passions while they were still young? Great question. And I think that's that last part is what he said. And you might have written this before that part um, where he said that is when he said, especially the prayer part. I would suggest this is me now, not Jeratheos. Thinking about, well, what do you want? And I'm not saying that sarcastically. I mean that objectively. Ask yourself what you want. I, I dealt with this recently. What's my goal? Like, what do I think is going to happen? Like, what is my memory of it doing? And, and what, what do I think is the resolution to that memory? Is it to go confront them again? Like, is that going to fix it? Now, what if I confront and they still feel the same about what they did? Then what? Right? Like, like I just mean on an objective level. And that's why the gospel is saying, concern yourself with what is right for you to do for what is healthy. Right. And I would say, especially those that the self-accusation um, exercises, those that's why I said last week, they're either whatever to you or or they are life changing, because to me, that's where for me, self-accusation comes in being like, why am I saying this? Why am I why am I angry? Who do I think I am? Haven't I done the same to this person or to others? Did I respond to them with the perfection of the gospel? And yet I want them to respond to me with the perfection of the gospel. Did I do like, like, like once I start to move it from how awful the other person is to man, I'm not like a cup of roses myself. My mood changes, right? And, and that mood change is the key. My disposition is different. And I suddenly don't view everybody as differently, like that Monday confrontation, I'm like, no, I'm a scumbag. These people love me and here I am upset about X. And then suddenly I wanted to cry being like, this is not about returning evil for evil. It's I'm returning evil for love, right? Like, like suddenly your disposition changes, right? And then you feel like you feel unworthy of that person. Um, it, it is life-changing. So try with that right? Try with the intercessions, try that prayer list of who's bothered me, and then also self-accuse. This thing that I'm holding against them, have I never wronged anybody? Have I specifically wronged people in this way, right? And start from, from there. 
Um, because then you might be like, man, who am I to hold it? Why am I continually prosecuting? Right? Because then you might at least reach the point of, I'll drop the charges. Right? I, I'm prosecuting this person. Let me drop the charges. Right? That's forgiveness. The extra part is the not remembering part. But at least start by dropping the charges because it sounds like you didn't really drop the charges. It might be that you've got a pending case file open, right? That you've put on the back burner, right? And so it hasn't been resolved. So start off by dropping the charges and then you can start dealing um, with, with, with the calls. Um, how do we forgive someone who is not sorry and or may not think they even did anything wrong? How should this change the friendship going forward? It shouldn't change it. Right, because again, the gospel is not saying, "Forgive them when that when thou shalt forgive when thou hast had them acknowledge the wrongness of their deed towards you." That's not what it says. It says when they persecute, when they spite you, when they speak all manner of evil against you, when they compel you to walk a mile, when they sue you for your outer coat, when like th there's no language of they're so nice and they came and they said so. No, it's 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 there's nothing. Nothing should be dependent upon the other person for me doing the gospel. The gospel does not have contingent upon it anything from from the other side. Nothing. Right? And that's why Christianity is not for the faint-hearted. It is rough. Like, it is, it is rough, right? Especially because of that ability to stand up for yourself. That's hard, right? Like, we, 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 like especially when you know you can answer. I'm a guy of words. There are so many times I'm like, oh, I could school them right now. If I just let my tongue loose, like, I'll win, right? Even if I'm wrong in the scenario, I'll know how to win. I can school this guy easily, right? But it's, it's, it's in the saying no, that's wrong, right? I will choose, I will love gospel. I will love my enemy. I will choose my enemy over me, over my satisfaction. Um, to tie what you wrote here to the question earlier, because I think there's some confusion about does forgetting wrong, I'm gonna ask the question another way for you, if you don't mind, for you being plural, not just one of you. Does remembering that like somebody did something not mean I can't learn from it? Let's say someone lies all the time, right? Uh, let's say somebody's always stealing from me, right? So I would say the gospel is saying, be lied to, be stolen from. But to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves, also means, but not in a way that caused harm or, or, or danger, right? So for example, okay, you want to lie to me, lie to me, no problem. If there's nothing contingent upon the lie that causes damage, that's unwise, that's, that's naivete, right? So let's say this person lied and I know that they're lying and said, oh, this is, this is safe to drink and it's a lie. I'm not going to be like, oh, cool, like, let me drink it. 
right? But I'm just saying, allow the lie. Don't try and fix the lie, right? Let's say you know somebody gossips about you, right? And 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 tells them people all of your 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 secrets. It is okay for you to say, I'm not going to open up about certain things. But it doesn't mean not treat them badly, treat them this, treat them that, right? So that's a different kind of remembrance, right? But if you're aiming for the thousand kilograms, you should struggle to believe the liar every time. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love believes all things. That's hard. I'm just going to give you the benefit of the doubt every single time. You should strive for that, right? So I, I don't want people to say the gospel says, but I'm like, no, strive for the gospel. If there's a, if there's a, but here, <laughs> if there's a, however here, it's uh, where you fall short of, however, I might not lift a thousand, not however my neighbor does it. The key is to, is to bring it back on, on, on you. I hope that clarifies a little bit. Um, Without crossing the line of responding in anger, how do we maintain this humility and not become a doormat when we were wrong? And I love this question because we're not doormats when it's a choice. That's the key thing. Like, like it comes up so much. The key is you are not a doormat because you are choosing. You're in the place of power. That's the power of the gospel. You have the freedom to not surrender yourself. You had the freedom to not choose your neighbor. So you are not a doormat, right? There's a story that I, I, I overtell those of you from Kitchener know him. Abuna Silas, God Reposes Soul, would tell us that story of that guy that tried to kill him at U of Waterloo in Canada, right? And Abuna Silas was not a pushover. Abuna, Abuna Silas tackled him to the ground, kneed him with his knee over the guy's Adam's apple, right? Abuna Silas was a Muslim convert and there was a Muslim trying to kill him for it. And he goes, I could kill you right now. And I'm not. And I'm not because I'm a Christian. I don't want you to misunderstand that turning the other cheek is not because I'm weak. It's because I'm strong. So I'm going to remove my knee from your Adam apple, from your neck right now, from your throat. And if you'd like to kill me, go ahead. I will let you. But if you prefer, we can go to Tim Hortons and talk about it over coffee. Um, and the guy chose coffee and the Buna lived to tell the story, right? But my point here is that that's a good um, physical manifestation of that concept of choosing is what makes you not a doormat, right? Think about parents or think about you, as a, even if you're not a parent. Think about when you've seen a kid say something that you know what they're up to and you let it be, right? Think of like, like a kid, one of my favorites is when it's like, when they want something that they see you have and like, oh, I don't have that, right? Which is code for, I want that, right? You know it, right? And you might still give it to them and you know what they're trying to, you're not like you manipulative little child who is trying to get under me until you can get what I have in my hand, right? You're like, okay, here it is, right? Like, habibi, right? If it's bad for them, you might say no, habibi, right? But the point is that you allowed it, you suffered it. Are you a pushover? No. 
right? So you're not a pushover unless you're a pushover. You're not a doormat unless you're a doormat, but it's not the gospel that makes you a doormat or a pushover. The gospel makes you the opposite. Um, and it's really um, powerful. Um, hello from San Diego. I do remember you. How do we differentiate praying about it to put out the fire versus when we pray on it, we're thinking about it and it prolongs the dwelling on it to add sticks to the fire. And regarding talking to people, sometimes we need validation because we feel like our emotions are crazy and just don't need to sit with it in order to process and it can help us not repress it. Are we instead to work through it on our own? What if it's too heavy and we discuss with a select few for support and not to just spread the drama? That did, uh, sorry, that didn't make sense. No, it does make sense. Let me divide that into pieces. Um, I've apparently struck a chord. There's already like 16 new questions underneath this. Um, so um, the first part, um, how do you differentiate praying about it to put out the fire versus when we pray on it, we're thinking about it and prolongs the fire. It depends on what you're praying for, right? Um, to be, I, I like to use hyperbole to make a point. It's not that I think you're saying this, but just for the sake of, of, of it being hyperbole would be like, you're not praying, oh Lord, kill that scumbag. Help that guy to find out how much he sucks, right? Then like, no, then you're stoking it, right? Oh Lord, remember when this person was so hostile and spiteful and disgusting and horrible? Remember them? Oh Lord, have mercy on them. Like then no, you're, you're even doing it with God. So what is your, it depends on what the prayer is, first of all, right? But if you're saying, Lord, deliver them in me, like, like, like Dorotheus was suggesting, right? Like help them with this and help me with this. Like the, the, our wrongs happened, help them. That's, that's one thing that will not be stoking the fire because you're saying, Lord, I'm asking you to help me put out the fire, right? Then it won't be stoked. Um, regarding talking to people, I get, but don't necessarily agree with the so-called getting validation in the sense that um, the gospel is not asking you to find out that you are right in this scenario. It's asking you to respond rightly. So I don't need, I shouldn't necessarily need others to tell me. I get it psychologically. I not think I get it, but I don't. The point of me telling others might, shouldn't be necessarily to be like, I'm right. Tell me I'm right. Where that might be a good thing to do is if you're actually questioning with sincerity, hey, can you help me out here if I did something wrong? To accuse yourself better. Right? So, for example, when I, when I sit with my father confession, um, and actually sometimes also with my, my bishop, um, if there's been an issue, there was an issue recently where I sent my vision being like, hey, this is what happened, right? I'm like, my first question to him was like, Sayyidina, am I, am I, is there anything you can tell me here that you see that I've done wrong? But with sincerity, not justify me, tell me that I'm not wrong, right? I'm not wrong, right? They're, they're wrong. But as sincere, I actually want to know what I did wrong because I probably did do something wrong. If I'm going to accuse myself truly, I probably actually really did do something wrong. And if I didn't physically do something wrong, I might have done something that caused a wrong interpretation or caused an, a reaction. So if I'm asking these others being like, hey, can you me? and like you said, a select few that are not there to stoke, that are not here to become my pity party, that are not there to stoke me, that are not my cheerleaders about how wrong the world is, where I'm sincerely trying to be like, hey, 
this happened and I'm struggling with it. Do you have advice? Do you guys see Mary, maybe where I, I slipped up? No, I think there can be a Christian way of doing that. But you will know what you're seeking and what's happening and what you're getting your joy from, right? I, I had that on my own confession list this week of saying, no, sometimes I'm happy for just someone to be like, you're so right. My joy is not in the actual being right. It's in that I'm right and someone else is wrong. I know my internal disposition, right? And so I would say the same thing to you. You know your dis internal disposition. What is my actual satisfaction coming from? Them being wrong and me being right? Because if that's what it is, I got to be careful, right? Um, I don't know if my answer answered that or not, but feel free to follow up. Um, how do we know when to use or balance self-accusation or humility versus setting healthy boundaries? Um, that's a great question. That would be what I was talking about earlier of the wisest serpent gentle as doves, as well as this understanding of how much can I carry? Am I at 200? I'm at 300. I'm at 400. I'm at 150. What is it that I'm at? Um, and then with the spiritual guidance to be like, okay, how can I be challenged here? What, where can I, me specifically, where can AP, if I'm at 150, what does 151 look like for me? Right? So that I can constantly do that and saying, and again, and, and where we set the so-called healthy boundaries, recognizing that the boundaries are because of my weakness, my 150 level, not that guy is a scumbag. This is if we're looking for gospel. Um, I don't know if I answered that well or not. Um, there's a difference between not remembering, dwelling, and learning lessons from experiences um, yes, go, this is responding, I think, to someone else's um, multiple's comments. I would agree with that. There's definitely a difference, well said, between not remembering slash dwelling on something as a remembrance of wrong versus learning the lesson from an experience. Well, well articulated. Um, what does forgiving really mean? Is it a feeling, a thought, a decision? How do I know if I've forgiven? Great question. That's something I would start off with forgiveness as dropping the charges, which is not as easy as people think because if i drop the charges like let's deal with it legally right if i drop the charges but then treat somebody as though they were actually guilty then i haven't forgiven i didn't drop the charges right so if i say because if i treat somebody as though they were prosecuted found guilty and condemned with just the lip service of i forgive i'm a liar Right. Where it's like for all intents and purposes, we went through the trial, but it's like it's this, it's this wink, wink of like, yeah, yeah, we won't prosecute you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we all know. Right. It's it's almost like a, what's it called? An Alfred plea. Um, where a person is allowed to plead guilty while maintaining innocence. Um, but like a, an inverse Alfred plea is what we're doing when we do that. Right. Of like. We'll let you plead innocent, but we all know y'all guilty, right? So I would say start off with, I drop the charges. Because forgiveness does not mean to pretend that, a, that an event didn't occur. That's the thing. And I think that's what people are, are thinking it means, right? If I can come to that, this is what Dorotheus is talking about. With spiritual practice, I can come to that point. I can come to the point of not even remembering. Um, and I'll, I'll throw in a personal thing here. Um, everybody knows I tell sob stories about my childhood and how just everything was. Um, I was mind blown 
recently where I can't, I actually can't remember so many things that I used to tell the stories. Like, I, I don't remember them anymore. Like, I, I want to because they're good stories and they'll make people love me more, but I don't remember them. Um, where I'm like, I just want to say it, it is possible. In the same way that retelling a story reinforces it, not retelling and not doing all that really can make you actually forget them over time. So I'm saying that can be a consequence, but start with, I drop the charges. And dropping the charges does not mean saying, let's say somebody knifed you just for a visceral crime. Forgiving does not say, oh, wow, nobody ever stabbed me. No, someone stabbed you. You were stabbed. That happened. It's a fact. But it's saying, I am not prosecuting you for your stabbing. I'm not holding you accountable for, the st- for your stabbing. I'm not standing there trying to, to accuse you all the time of your stabbing. It's done. Because as Dorotheo said, to use this analogy, because if you wait till the next time, like, aha, see, you stabbed me before. It's like, okay, so you didn't really drop the charges. You're re-prosecuting me for the same charge as before. You said you dropped it. You didn't. Right? It's different from saying, I know this person has a knife, but my reflexes are not sharp. Me, not them. Not that disgusting scumbag of a knife wielder. I need to keep a safe distance because I have poor reflexes. I am not fast on my feet. So this is why I am staying away. It is not because of that horrible person. It's because of my weakness. It's a poor analogy. Um, like it's a really bad analogy actually as I dwell on it, but Danny, take from it what, what you can. Um, it feels naive to keep trusting someone that hurt you or gossiped or can't be trusted. But I'm saying, I'm not saying you have to. Forgiveness is not the same as pretending you trust them, right? Perfect forgiveness would be, but I'm saying start off by dropping the charges. That's what I'm saying. You could say, I'm going to be careful about saying personal things, right? You, you could. Is different from constantly holding the crime against them of saying, I don't like you, you're bad because you did this thing, right? That's uh, to, the, to what that other person wrote. Learning your lesson is not the same as reliving and holding against people the past. They're two different things. Um, In reference to love believes all things, um, that was profound, but that feels so naive to say that I will believe that a person won't lie when they're a pathological liar. Ooh. Why do we set ourselves up for fear in that sense? Sorry, I oohed out loud because that that was a judgment. If we're going to go two weeks back to Dorotheos, Saying someone lies is different from calling someone a pathological liar, right? So forgive me for putting on blast, but there's a, there's a judgment there, right? So self-accusation is like, don't I lie? Forgiveness is to say, I'm not going to constantly prosecute them over and over and over because they lie. Love believes all things. I'm saying, here's what perfection of love looks like so that you can constantly work towards it with wisdom, right? With wisdom, right? So what I care more about is not pretending you believe them when you don't, I'm not saying that, but make sure I don't have malice. Make sure that I'm not judging. Make sure that I'm not constantly viewing them in a negative way. Make sure that I'm not treating them as a different kind of human being, right? 
And, and that's why I'm like, these, these exercises will change us. Because let's say you find out that this so-called pathological liar grew up in a home where every time they told the truth, they were beat for it. And even when they're telling the truth to try and like everything that they did was punished. And that lying became their only way to not get physically beat because of their trauma. Would you be angry with them or have compassion on them? I know this is not your point. But would you view them as these scumbags? You'd be like, man, this thing sucks. It sucks that they're lying. I'm not pretending that I like the lies. But yeah, I knew this is what they went through. It's not saying, oh, wow, your lying is so good because you went through X. No. It's saying, I don't view you that way. Right? Because if we start acting as Christians, they might too. They might too. And it does not mean never confronting on a lie right like what what if it might be appropriate one time of saying like or even let's say the gossip of saying can i ask you a question i thought that what i said to you was said in confidence but i this circled back to me and i discovered that people found it out because i value as a friend i'm asking sincerely is there a reason why you share the information it's not even saying that there's never even a confrontation, for example. There could be. All I'm saying is, are we concerned with doing the gospel or are we concerned with finding out why someone else is wrong? That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Right? Start with the you. Start with the gospel. Right? And then the rest will fall into place, especially with guidance. So saying, now, how do I deal with this particular scenario? I'm not saying, like I said, pretend to believe what you don't. Right? Um, how do you practice that without falling to pride or self-righteousness? Actually, that's the irony. You might get into a bit of pride and self-righteousness, and that's okay. But then we work on that too, right? So you might be like, oh, wow, good job. I forgave. I didn't turn the other cheek. I stopped in his track. No, you might. You might have that warfare for sure, right? I, I have those all the time. Like, I didn't answer back this time. Ten points for Gryffindor, right? But you, you... You then will work on that as a different warfare, which is fine, right? Like for me, part of the way I do it is like, it's not true because I said it. It's not good because I did it. It's good because it's what's right. I'm not the source of goodness, right? And then I can root myself again in the truth, right? Of being like, whoop you do that day, right? But it's almost like, it's almost like in the health analogy of being like, man, I'm getting a six pack. Yeah, you're going to have some excitement over. It. And that excitement is not even a bad thing. It's not bad that you're rejoicing at good. But if you start viewing yourself as the author of health and the reason for all six packs in the universe, like, then we have a problem, right? Then it, then it's, it needs some treatment. Um, to forgive and love and be kind despite what's happened is definitely a position of control and freedom. Again, well said. You're on a roll. Same person with the pearl from earlier. Um, someone sent me a Bible verse. I, I won't be able to read it all. If you can send me what it is in the chat would be good. Um, okay, sorry, this person was on a roll. I got in touch with another text. To forgive and love and be kind despite what's happened is definitely a position of control and freedom. 
to remember and hold it in your heart and be angry is a form of enslavement, 100%. Um, oh, and the Bible story was David sparing Saul in the cave. That's another great example. Um, like for those of you who don't remember the story, when Saul was hunting down David, right? David ends up in his cave, cuts a piece of his garment, goes out from a distance, calls out to Saul to be like, I could have killed you and I'm not. Like, why are you doing this? So it's like there, there is such thing as healthy confrontation. And, and the point of, I think, of, of comparing the story to Ben Silas is he could have killed him, right? It's the choice that made him not. Um, uh, so I need to understand the logic behind the person that hurts you not suffering and the person that is hurt is suffering. How do you overcome this? Again, in my mind is to say your remedy is clearly not even going to come from this other person. Right? We're speaking as though the person confessing their fault is somehow going to fix the situation. It doesn't. Let's use the knifing example. If someone knifed you, so let's say it for say I didn't knife them. Okay, they did. Okay, it's a fact. Now let's say they admit it, like in this scenario. Okay, they, now you got them to say I knifed you. You still have a gaping wound in your belly where they knifed you. Unless that person is happens, if your knifer happens to also be a skilled surgeon, licensed that can give you antibiotics and do the surgery, what use is it to you in your healing that the person acknowledges that they knifed you? Right? I think you're giving too much power to your aggressor. And instead what we're saying is, put your meaning and your internal in God. This is how, I think people are, are worked up by this. I'm not surprised because we don't like gospel anymore. We like the touchy-feely Christianity of like, of or like the hugs and the full house background music of like, it's okay, Candace, that you drove like, like the, Michelle, sorry, whoever it was, the car into the house right? That, like, this is where real-life Christianity takes place. It's not in theory, it's in practice. And this is how the saints became saints, right? This is how Macarius became Macarius. And I've already, this story just keeps coming up, right? With the whole, like, knocking up a girl from the church, accusing him of that, he forgave them. That's how Macarius was Macarius, right? It was because he chose this, and not self-vindication. And when he didn't, God did. That's the part that's missing from all of this. When you don't judge, God does. When you don't take justice into your own hands, God does. When you're merciful, God does it to you. Right? We're forgetting that God's real. He's real. It's not an idea. Right? So if you really believe him and in him, try it. Try it. It's so liberating. You can be a room full of people who hate you and you're the chillest one in the room. That's why Pope Kronlos could be Pope Kronlos. Right? Where he's just like, cool. His own priests. We're wait, spending hours into the wee hours of the night distributing flyers 
making him out to be a con man and a horrible person. And he knew, he knew by a spiritual gift, he knew the, the irony of ironies. And so then when their, when their machine broke down twice, one of them is like, maybe this is because of what we're doing. And he goes to Pope Corliss and he's like, yeah, yeah, I know you're up to the mornings. It reached all the way to a suit, right? And then the guy's like, you knew? And he's like, yeah, he's like, why didn't you say anything? He goes, I was praying for you. He was doing this exercise, right? And he was so chill and won them all over. Mercy, mercy, not vengeance. What we're struggling with in this, in this is most of us are, don't want to say it is that part of us wants vengeance, even if we don't want to word it that way. Part of us wants retaliation. Deny your right of retaliation and see what incredible blessing you get in this place. Is forgiving meaning to forget? How do we get ourselves to truly forget? So no, forgiveness as things start with forgiveness as dropping the charges. What I'm saying is that it is possible to forget. I do think forgetting comes with the divine grace. I do. But it comes with divine grace of wanting it. And that's why I think Dorothea's advice is ask for it, pray for it, seek it. Right? And you might be shocked to find out how unaffected you become by things that used to affect you. It is possible. I've seen it in real life. It's not just theory. Um, uh, in the past, my father confession has said um, something like, maybe you're going through X, Y, Z, suffering a trial in order to help someone else who goes through something similar in the future and sharing with them your experience or help them through it. How do we exercise that with what we discussed regarding remembering, repeating the story reinforces it? Again, because you can learn from the lesson. And I think actually, especially if you work towards a virtue, you'll have even more to teach from it. Like I'm able to say now from my own experience, not just from a book, it's possible to forget. Right? I'm also able, for example, where there was conflict before to find out that I was wrong and I didn't even know I was wrong. And in a certain scenario, I thought I was right and I wasn't. And if I use that story immediately after the story was fresh, I would have told the story like these wrong people did this and here's what I did, but I was wrong. So again, there's nothing wrong with um, learning from the past. Like it's not to say that. It's saying this remembering evil is I'm holding against somebody and I'm replaying the story because I am still holding it against them. Drop the charge. That's what we're saying. Drop the formal charge. Right? Dropping the charge does not mean the crime didn't occur. It just means not holding them accountable for that charge. If someone robbed my store and they were arrested, and I say, no, officer, don't press charges, that's what we're saying. But can I learn from it and say, but because someone robbed my store, I'm going to install security? Yes, I can. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? I now have a video camera in front of my store. No problem. It's different from that scumbag that came. I dropped the charges, but that's a real scumbag. Let me tell you how he's a scumbag. And he had the audacity to say this, and then he did this. And when the police came, he did that. That's what Dorothea is talking about. That's not okay. Right? That's, that's that differentiation. Um, uh, what if you apologize to someone and they tell you you aren't really sorry that's on them at that point if you were truly sorry 
right? What I would suggest saying, like, is to say, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I wish that you believe my sincerity. Is there a way that would show you my sincerity? Because if I really want to reconcile, I should want that, right? Is there a way, is there something I can do that would show you the sincerity of my apology? If they say yes, like, okay, what is it? And if it's in my power to do it, then I'll do it, right? Um, but if they want to continue to hold against you, now that is 100% not in the realm of yours. But you can hold it against them and you should always seek it out to the best of your ability, that reconciliation. Um, last question, because like this has been amazing. There's uh, last one that I'll do. There's, I'm, I'm amazed at how many came in. How do you know when to confront in sincerity and when to not act and speak um, uh, for a response to a situation to be a non-response? I think that requires a lot of um, self-reflection. Um, do a self a self-inspection. Why am I confronting? Why am I confronting? Is it because I I want them to find out that I'm right, or is it because I sincerely want resolution? Is it because I sincerely want reconciliation? I would start with that because if that's what you're seeking and you're ready to be wrong sincerely and to view yourself to self-accuse. Like if you can look at those exercises, if you haven't already from self-accusation, start there, right? That's why almost in any confrontation, I tell people first do your humility self-accusation exercise always first, always do that before going into confrontation because then you'll, you'll enter with the right frame of mind and a willingness to be wrong in a situation, even if you don't view it that way. Because then if what you're seeking is reconciliation, what you'll go into saying like, I'm, you'll start with the I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this conflict is occurring and I want it to be resolved. What can I do? Suddenly, this is a peaceful confrontation, not a hostile one. If they choose to continue to be hostile and you're trying to do the gospel in return, no problem. At least you can be clean about it. Right? Like, then it's just like, okay, and you're not holding it um, against it. Um, I think, because there's a, a, a few more that have come in, I think I'm going to end there because um, I do have uh, people coming over in, in 15. Um, and so I'll get way too into it. Um, if you guys can, uh, if you had something that didn't get answered or said, um, if you can hang on to it for next week, next week will be, uh, for those who weren't there at the beginning, it'll be the last one for this summer. Um, and so it will be on lying, um, and we'll end it there for the live sessions anyway. Um, I will, with your prayers, hopefully pick up on, um, the blog side of things, um, with the audio to go with it, um, because I can do that at random hours. Um, but thank you guys for everything. So please pray for me. Um, and, um, we will end with prayer. Name the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, God, Amen. Um. Lord, make us worthy of with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not temptation, but us from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, grace of the Holy Son, the communion gives us with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Good night, everyone.